this is David Beeson welcoming you to episode 47 of A History of England, entitled Time for Another War. Peace can get so boring, can't it? In the late 1730s, when Walpole had been in office for some 18 years, the opposition began to feel that his long peace was damaging Britain, undermining its virility even, above all limiting its capacity to extend its global power and maximise its business opportunities. Britain was beginning to hit the boundaries created by its rivals. Spain might be yesterday's power, but for the moment it still controlled, owned indeed, most of America. Its territory covered the bulk of South America, the main exception being the Portuguese possessions that now make up Brazil. From there, its holdings extended through Central America into North America, covering not just what we now call Mexico, but also much of the present-day United States, including California in the west and Florida in the east. It also held several islands in the Caribbean. These were all possessions fiercely guarded by the Spanish against British trade on any terms but Spain's own. Then there were the French. They'd been slow getting into the colonising game, but they were catching up fast by the end of the Walpole period. They too had islands in the Caribbean, and as we've already said, a more productive sugar trade than Britain's. They competed with Britain in the slave trade, and their trade in other commodities alongside sugar, such as coffee and indigo, were hurting Britain, which couldn't compete with French prices back in Europe. France was also on the move in India, where the British East India Company was beginning to build itself some profitable footholds, but it was in North America that it was the greatest colonial threat. France had possessions in Canada, in the Great Lakes region, and in New Orleans. Then it took on a colossal challenge. It decided in the mid-18th century to link all those holdings, building roads and waterways between the St. Lawrence in Canada and the Mississippi, and then down the length of that great river to its mouth in the Gulf of Mexico. 3,000 kilometres of roads and navigable rivers, an enterprise breathtaking in its ambition. One effect would be to put a firm boundary on the expansion westward of the British North American colonies. They would have significant territories into which to expand, but they'd still be hemmed in, with a clear line marking the furthest limit they could extend to westward, beyond which they'd be blocked by French territory. That wasn't how the British North American colonies saw their destiny. Virginia, for instance, believed that its territory extended clean across the continent to the island of California. The colonists and France had visions that were bound to clash. To make things still worse, there was a family connection between Britain's two rivals in the Americas. The War of Spanish Succession had put a member of the French Bourbon dynasty on the Spanish throne. For a time, the two houses were inclined to back each other. This meant, for instance, that while Spanish coast guards might well board a British ship heading to the Americas to check for contraband, they probably wouldn't give a French ship as hard a time. In fact, it was with Spain that the new quarrel got going. You may remember that one of the conditions of the peace treaty signed at the end of the war of Spanish succession, a condition conceded with extreme bad grace by Spain, gave Britain limited trading access to its South American holdings. That meant letting in a dangerous competitor on that highly profitable business, the slave trade. As you can imagine, Britain was keen, Spain far less so. 
the Africans, had anyone consulted them, would have been even less enthusiastic. You could tell just how keen Britain was from the huge growth of the South Sea Company. That's the one that blew up when the South Sea bubble burst. Its fortunes, while it enjoyed them, were based on the government's grounds of a monopoly on British trade to Spain's American possessions. It didn't seem to matter that the promise of trade with those possessions was an empty one, since it would only be kept if the Spanish played ball, and they had absolutely no intention of cooperating. Walpole's government didn't push the issue too hard at first, since it had a far better business going with Spain than trading to its colonies could ever be. Britain was doing well selling goods to Spain itself, some of which the Spanish would then sell on to their American holdings. The profit on that trade was far better than could be hoped for from the relatively small volume of business Britain could generate by trading in South America directly. Sometimes it makes a lot more sense to protect your major trade with a neighbour than jeopardise it in pursuit of opportunities further away which may never add up to much, a lesson England could profitably learn again today. Tensions remained, though. Spain kept carrying out its pesky Coast Guard checks with little courtesy towards British ships. It was one of those inspections that brought things to the boil. A Spanish officer who'd boarded a British ship and found contraband grew so angry with the captain, one Robert Jenkins, that he chopped off one of his ears. That was obviously far too wounding an insult to British national pride. It couldn't be borne. Britain had to respond, and respond it did, but very, very slowly. The intolerable insult of a British sea captain having an ear cut off occurred in 1731. It didn't even generate a public scandal until 1738. Still, there were plenty of tub-thumpers and war-hawks making up for the delay by demanding a military response to this unforgivable atrocity at least once they'd got around to it, or once they'd woken up to the political opportunity it offered. Walpole's Tory opponents, for instance, were outspoken in their demands for action. Far more damaging still was the campaign being waged from within his own Whig party. We heard last time about those young men such as George Grenville and William Pitt the Elder, recently elected to Parliament, who turned out to be major irritations for the poor old Prime Minister. Pitt, in particular, launched a series of scathing attacks in the Commons, winning himself quite a reputation as an orator. A lot of his oratory was, of course, directed against his fellow Whig Walpole, rather underlining the observation we made before that party discipline then was even less strict than it is today. The pressure for action against Spain grew. There was even a story that Captain Jenkins himself attended Parliament, with his ear pickled in a jar, to show it to MPs in the hope that it would galvanise them into action. There's no evidence that this event ever happened, and it's unlikely it did. A cartoon of the time, however, shows Walpole looking with some indifference at the ear, while another of his ministers just chats with a lady instead, turning his back on the unfortunate captain. If Walpole initially resisted the calls for war, that was entirely in character. He remained true to his view that Britain had far more to gain from peace and commerce than from war and glory. He opened negotiations with the Spanish and came up with a convention that established a bit of a compromise, with some give and some take on both sides. To Pitt, that was, 
nothing but a stipulation for national ignominy. Fortunately for Pitt, though sadly for Walpole, the Spanish obliged Pitt by refusing to sign the convention. Reluctantly and against Walpole's better judgment, he and the king bowed to the pressure and took Britain to war. For two decades, Walpole had kept Britain out of international conflicts. That was now over. He didn't know it, of course, but over the 76 years between 1739, the start of the War of Jenkins' ear, as it came to be known, and the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, Britain would be at war for 45. And it would always be up against France, or at least one of its allies. At first, the war went swimmingly. Initially, Walpole sent Vice Admiral Edward Vernon off to the Americas with a detachment of Royal Navy ships to teach those Spaniards a lesson or two, which he duly did. Have you ever been to Portobello Road Market in London? Or come to that, the little town near Edinburgh called Portobello, with its stunning beach and freezing cold sea? Well, the many Portobellos in Britain are called after Admiral Vernon's great victory at Portobello in Panama, where he overcame a far smaller Spanish force and destroyed their fort. That's pretty much all he did, by the way. He didn't seize any territory, he didn't build a presence, he just destroyed the fort. Remember what we were saying in the last episode about that fine and stirring song, Rule Britannia? It was first sung at a celebration of the great victory at Portobello. I'm not even going to mention the symbolism of one of the great British patriotic songs marking a completely empty triumph. Vernon had several other victories of about this magnitude as well as a few reverses. Where he really came unstuck was in a major attack on the city of Cartagena de Indias on the Caribbean coast of what is now Colombia, then the Spanish possession of New Granada. Things started going wrong even before any soldiers went ashore, with Vernon locked in constant and venomous dispute with Thomas Wentworth, the general commanding the land force. What made it still worse was the desperately unfair behaviour of the Spanish, who entrusted the defence of the city to an admiral, a character called Blas de Lethal. How unfair is that? An admiral leading a land campaign? What's more, he was missing a hand, had lost mobility in the other arm, and was short of both an eye and a leg. That makes him just the kind of underdog figure that audiences sympathise with in war films. What chance did Vernon and Wentworth truly have against him? To cap all his other totally unjust advantages, Blasteletho also turned out to be a highly competent general, as, it seemed, he'd already proved he was an admiral. Neither Vernon nor Wentworth, sad though it is to say, showed quite the same level of ability. The British did breach the outer perimeter of the defences, and Vernon made the error of writing to London to say that the city had fallen. It was a little premature, and unfortunately his grateful compatriots at home even went so far as to cast a medal celebrating the victory. That's something the inhabitants of Cartagena continue to gloat over to the present day. Why, they even tell the story that the medals were on one of Vernon's ships that sank off Cartagena. Imagine the divers' delight when they found the medals, celebrating a victory that never happened in the ship's hold. Fortunately, that story at least is false. False in fact, at any rate, though in spirit it probably sums up the British endeavour pretty accurately. 
Vernon and Wentworth had landed men on the coast near the city, apparently unaware that the place was all swamps alive with horrible diseases. The men died like flies, a third of them killed by yellow fever. When they attacked the city's inner defences, Blas de Lethal saw them off successfully. The survivors struggled back to the ships. Vernon upped anchor and sailed away, badly beaten, his tail between his legs. There are no British streets, places or patriotic songs commemorating Vernon's Cartagena campaign, unlike the Porto Bello one. He had to rest on the laurels of his first and empty victory, while the really big one proved beyond his grasp. Oddly enough, there is an American monument to that weird campaign. Among the land forces Vernon used were 3,600 men from the English colony of Virginia. Only 300 of them eventually made it home. One of the survivors was an officer, Lawrence Washington. Strangely enough, his experience had clearly not opened his eyes to the incompetence of the overall commander, since he decided to honour him when he came to name the new home he built back in Virginia. After Lawrence Washington's death, the house became the home of his rather better-known younger half-brother, George Washington. It's fun to think that the iconic home of the first President of the United States is called after a rather lamentable British military commander, but that's how Mount Vernon got its name. Vernon and Wentworth, still bickering with each other, did some more fighting in the Caribbean, notably in Cuba, gaining little but losing more men, including to yellow fever. Strangely enough, both his successes and his more numerous failures worked against Walpole. The trivial victory at Porto Bello gave momentum to his opponents, who turned it into a weapon against him as the man who'd opposed a war which at that point seemed to be going so well. Then the defeats gave them more ammunition as they unfairly held him to blame for the fiascos. Eventually, in 1742, having lost a key parliamentary vote, Walpole stepped down at last. After nearly 21 years dominating British politics as the country's first Prime Minister, he was gone. Vernon's disaster at Cartagena had helped him on his way. By then, the War of Jenkins' Ear had been subsumed into a wider conflict, fought in Europe as well as the colonies, the War of Austrian Succession. But that exciting topic we can leave to the next episode. Thanks for listening to this one. Yeah.